listening to the Rainmaking Podcast. Hosted by high-stakes headhunter, author, and professional speaker, Scott Love. This is the Rainmaking Podcast, and my name is Scott Love, your host, and thanks for joining me. If you're in the business of getting business, this is the show for you. Each week, we bring you insights from successful authors, professional speakers, people that actually do rainmaking and client development to give you ideas that you can take and hopefully grow your practice, grow your book of business, grow your company. One speaker we have, somebody I've been following for several years, and I'm really excited about this speaker and this author. His name is Phil M. Jones. You may have heard of Phil. You may have read his book called Exactly What to Say. And before I talk about him, I want to talk about what our company did with his book. Several years ago, I read his book, and we're going to put the links in the show notes, and it made a significant difference in my own recruiting practice and how I communicate to a sophisticated group of people. I had actually set a record for highlighting more lines of text in his book than any other book that I've ever read, and I've read a lot of books. In fact, what we did with on our own company, I've got a colleague, Brian Silver, that runs our associate division, two research colleagues that support both of us. We actually picked Phil's book apart and we did training. This past week, I had each of them, I said, I want you to give me three to five ideas and tell us what were those action steps that you can apply to the real world of professional level selling. And we only got into the first couple of chapters. We're going to continue doing this over the next few weeks. So that's one idea. If you lead a team of people, you can take Phil's book and use that as an internal training exercise. So let me tell you a little bit about Phil, and we'll get right into the interview. Phil is a professional author. He's a global thought leader in the area of influence. He deals with high-level organizations, teaching them how to change their words and how to change their world. And we're going to get into my interview today here in just a second, but one request, if you like this conversation I have with Phil, take a minute, go to Apple Podcasts and write a five-star review talking about some of the specific things that you learned. And now, without further ado, here's my guest, Phil Jones. Hey, this is Scott Love. Thanks for joining me on the Rainmaking Podcast. We have a special guest today. His name is Phil Jones. And today we're talking about exactly what to say. Phil, thanks for joining me on the show today. It is a pleasure to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And just to kind of give some background, we're going to talk about Phil's book later, but I didn't even know who he was when I read his book three or four years ago, and it made a huge difference. We're going to talk about that. And Phil, you're an internationally recognized expert on sales and I, I like the fact that you have a very clear way about saying things that gets people to take action. Let me kind of start with this question. What do you think is the secret of knowing what to say when you're talking with clients and prospects? I don't think there's necessarily a secret. It's just the ability to do the work before the work and know that the worst time to think about the thing you're going to say is in the moment when you're saying it. I've worked okay. in over 800 different industries. And in every one of those industries, people are very good at telling me the things that their client or prospect says that they don't like. Like they can be very predictable about what is coming from the other side of the conversation. Mm -hmm. And then I ask them, well, what do you say to prevent that? Or what do you say to be able to overcome that? Or what do you say to be able to steer towards that point of friction not being a thing? They're like, um, I don't know. Or they give me a gargled response towards it. And what I've learned from training more than 2 million professionals is that it's those that are prepared to do the work before the work to say that they know that their difference is finding the right words at the right time and then be ready to deliver those words on cue 
Mm-hmm. Means that they can be more present in conversations. Means that they can show up and actually be more agile for the differences that come in human connection because they're not all in their head thinking, "What is it I need to say?" Because they've already done that work. That's right. And so, tell me this: when you say "do the work before the work," what does that mean exactly? Well, put it this way: is is I am certain that in every given industry, people are aware of the points of friction that could prevent them from getting the outcome that they hope for. Right. Almost certain. And if they're not, they just haven't got that experience yet, and they get there pretty quick. So if you are smart enough to say, what am I fearful that they might say or might not say, then what you can do is you can plan your questions, you can plan your conversational triggers, you can plan your outcomes, you can plan your case studies towards not overcoming an objection, but just avoiding an objection ever existing. Hmm. And that's what I mean in one instance by work before the work. And then the other is, is know that this is a skill. And it's a skill that requires practice. It requires experience. It requires consideration. And you get better at a skill by actually doing the work after the work, which happens to be the work before the work of the next time you're going to do it. Right. right. What I mean by is is some debrief is being brave enough to say, well, okay, what went well there? What could I do different next time? What went well there? What could be different next time? And being on this relentless quest for better and understanding that language at key points, particularly when you're looking to be able to make deals or make stuff happen, can quite often be the difference between somebody saying, heck yes, or maybe. And maybe is quite often the enemy, right? You think about the people that you serve, is is it isn't people that are saying straight up, no, thank you. It's people that are stuck in indecision that is really the enemy of the progress we're looking to make. Let me think about it. Yeah, and (laughs) any version of which, right? It's let me think about it. It's okay, let me run this through with some partners. Let me chat this through later. Maybe let's regroup on this in three months. It's any version of no, not today is the enemy. So if what you can do is be brave enough to be good at debriefing, pre-gaming, and being aware of the fact that you actually have a job to be able to do and you're a part of a never-ending story, you can find efficiencies. And efficiencies so, lead to results. So tell me, when you say points of friction, I like that. It's kinesthetic. I kind of have an idea what that means. If we could segment the different points of friction that we see within our sales process into certain categories or into certain the sophisticated term I use is certain buckets. What, yep. what buckets What buckets can we put those points of friction in? I mean, that they are plentiful and it depends on the type of sales process that you're mapping out. But more often than not, people are already receiving points of friction as to why should I even meet with you or speak with you in the first place? Mm-hmm. What they're then facing points of friction in is, is tell me why this conversation is worthwhile to me. Where's my output? Where's, you know, where's the benefit for me long-term? We've then got other points of friction, which is why you as opposed to somebody like you. We've got other points of friction, which is why now as opposed to later. Mm. We've got other points of friction as to what else could I do to solve this problem instead of any of the things that we're being able to talk about. Then we've got the points of friction like, can I afford it? Is it worth it? And I think you can go as granular as you like on this. And it depends on the sophistication of the sales process. But be aware of the fact that there are efficiencies in conversation and friction is the thing that creates inefficiencies. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we are looking to be able to minimize that. And quite often, success in selling isn't embellishing the option of yes, it's destroying the option of no. Right. Say that again. It's not embellishing the option of yes, it's destroying the option of no. Interesting. If you have a meaningful conversation with somebody and you realize that you're never the right fit to do business with them and they realize the same, that for me is a pretty darn successful conversation. Right. And, and what often happens is, is people look to be able to use a conversation to explain to the other person why they're so brilliant at a thing that they haven't necessarily qualified. 
If I put it even more simply, is in the medical industry that prescription before diagnosis is malpractice. Right. Yet many of us in business feel very happy to prescribe our brilliance to somebody as the solution to a need that we haven't yet fully uncovered with symptoms that we don't yet understand. And that's where the bulk of the friction comes from. And, so, and you want a dictionary definition of what, what selling is in my language. It really is earning the right to make a recommendation. That is all that selling is, is earning the right to make a recommendation. There's a lot in that. And it's best simplified by saying that you should probably never, ever, 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 ever invite anybody to buy your thing or follow your advice unless you can say these words first. And the words you should look to be able to say first are the words because of the fact that you said. Because of the fact that you said blank, blank, and blank, then for those reasons, what I'd recommend is blank, blank, and blank. And what that means is you play from a position of certainty as opposed to hope. That's great. So as we think about exactly what to say, I'm kind of getting different parts. It's the work before the work. And let's say as we're in the middle of the conversation here, we're doing our, and what would you call it? Our investigation, our probing, how would you call it on the, on the front end with the client prospect? I would say that we're remaining curious for as long as possible with the goal to create clarity. And we can call that qualifying. We can call it discovery. We can call it whatever we choose to be able to like. But what I encourage people to do is to stay curious for long enough so that you can create certainty or clarity in their context. Hmm. What happens is when you remain curious for long enough in a conversation, you then reach empathy. Hmm. Empathy is the ability to be able to see the world from the other person's point of view. When you maintain empathy, it becomes you and them versus it, as opposed to you versus them. And many people find themselves in a sales conversation when they want to win the you versus them argument. And if you're trying to win the you versus them argument, it means when you win, they lose. Therefore, they feel like a loser and losers don't like to spend money. Right. So it's stay curious for long enough to reach empathy. When you've reached empathy, it's you and them versus it. You've triggered the show me that you know me button inside the head of the other person. At that point, and only at that point, you should then have the courage to be able to ask for the outcome that you're looking to achieve that is mutually beneficial for all parties. So it's curiosity, empathy, courage. Curiosity, empathy, courage. That's the dance. The mistake that people make is they think it's all about being courageous. But if you're courageous before you're curious and empathetic, then what you are is you're pushy, you're obnoxious, you're rude, you're self-serving. All the things that people hate about salespeople. If you're curious for long enough, reach a position of empathy and then courageous to make big, bold, brave asks, you're helpful, you're kind, you're a trusted advisor, you're a leader, you're a genuine partner. Do you think some people do this naturally? I think some people are naturally more curious than others. Mm -hmm. There is a a risk in the stereotype of great salespeople is that they need to be this, this sort of bullish, rude, arrogant, overly confident individual, you know, will achieve results at the expense of anything. Right. And my experience of working globally is, is really, is that true? Like, it doesn't mean that those people don't get good results, but the one that get great results consistently over a period of time without burnout and are well-respected by both peers and customers are the ones that are naturally curious for a long period of time. They're the ones that, that land the big deal that took seven years to make because they understood what was the decision-making process inside that organization, who are all the people that are involved in being able to make that deal when they ask the questions to find the clarity, to get the context, to be on the same side as the people they're looking to influence. So what about always be closing, Phil? I thought that's what we're supposed to be doing, right? I mean, if you're hiring a team full of people that you're going to pump through a service center, that you're going to smile and dial and work the numbers, then maybe that's a message that would yeah. lead you some results, but it will burn people out. Right. 
And we live in a world where today where, where our reputations are so much more visible than they ever have been before. There's a level of transparency through both employer and consumer is fully transparent. If what you want to do is to have this always be closing mentality, and we think we're in Glen Gary, Glen Ross, <laughs> then, then expect churn on every side of this. And I think we live in a world right now where people are only just starting to realize there's capacity. People play like there is no capacity. They play like there's always more opportunity. There's always more people. There's always another deal. There's always another organization. And that, that, that is true in many industries in that there is a lot more capacity than people, people sometimes play like there is. But there is finite. We see this with social platforms right now where they, they're full. There are no more people to be on Facebook. It's like, let's just hope the people that are born join Facebook as quick as the people that die. (laughs) And people are realizing that, that now that we've moved towards a global opportunity with so much more transparency, we were talking offline before we even hit record, is you can work from anywhere now, which means you can serve clients anywhere, which means the opportunity is bigger than ever. But the opportunity becomes finite for everybody because we're all playing with the same group of people, which is a finite number of people. So let me take you back to what you said about debriefs? Because that was interesting to me. What does that mean exactly? When you talk about debriefs, what does that mean? How do we have that relentless quest for better through our debriefs? Well, to succeed with levels of excellence, you need to be your own best coach. You can't rely on the feedback from other people. The risk from feedback from other people is it's either excessively negative because of the other person's personal bias or own insecurities or it is overly zealous on its praise that it isn't actually useful. It's just like, thank you for the encouragement of the joy. If you want to be able to progress things, you've got to be able to self-evaluate. The easiest way that I do this, and we do this in dozens of different ways, and we do it with clients too, is the writing of two lists after two major events. Mm-hmm. Anytime I've done anything important, I write two lists. The first list is a list of what I call my LBs. What does LB stand for? It stands for like best. What do I like best about that? How that meeting went? And I do not move off of that list until I finish that list. Right. Like the job is to be able to fill up on the good news. Why? Because I want to repeat those behaviors. I want to be able to reinforce those behaviors. I want those to become habits. So being kind enough to say, what did I like best about how that went is the perfect place to start. Now, the second list I write is a list of my NTs, which is a list of what I do differently next time. Next time. Great. And by playing in what did I like best and what did I do next time, I I enjoy being in the mess of the gray. Like I'm never done. This is never right and wrong. This is never good and bad. It's what did I like best and what would I do differently next time? Right. And it keeps us in this ability to be able to keep getting better at things. There are so many businesses as well that, that want to define best practices or want to say things like I'm doing my best. The trouble is if you believe the best is the benchmark, it actually suppresses. How many times have you ever said maybe to someone like, don't worry, you tried your best. And inside you're like, I know, no, they didn't. (laughs) Right. You've even said it yourself. Like I was trying my best. And if you're honest and held a mirror up, you're like, eh, I got up late and I didn't properly prepare. And I, you know, I really probably should have pushed a bit harder at that. And I called that done before it was ready. And like, but you still use this excuse that I tried my best. And by focusing on best, we limit beliefs. Yet by focusing on better, we can burn straight through. Existing beliefs. And and that's what I try to live on from a debrief point of view is how can I be on the relentless quest for better, building what was already good? 
And when you take that level of thinking towards sales conversations, towards meeting management, towards professional speaking, towards a podcast interview, the game remains fun. Yeah. I like how you understand the importance of nuance and communication. You obviously have mastered that, Phil, leading us back to exactly what to say. So tell me this, what's an example of a company or an organization you've worked with where you work with them from the beginning? You help them to understand different points of friction. You help them do the work before the work. You taught them how to debrief, how to pregame. What are some examples of people that have done this where they really understand this curiosity, empathy, clarity, and courage? Uh, Give me examples of that. Well, the short answer is I haven't got one because I've never had the ability of being able to work with somebody from the very beginning. It's quite often or not is I'm working with somebody when they are realizing they are off track and that they've got inefficiencies and opportunities. That's typically where I get to be able to work. But a recent example where, where I got to be very heavily ingrained in an organization to be able to make these changes is in a major banking client here in the US that are a brilliant organization, really committed towards growth and betterment. And I'd keynoted for them for a couple of years, helping them raise their game when it comes to knowing exactly what to say and being that sprinkle on the top of existing goodness. And then when the pandemic hit, everything moved towards being virtually communicating and how do they then support their clients through what was one of the most difficult economic times that existed is we really dug in. We looked at how could they do the work before the work so they could be more useful. And it wasn't showing up to their clients saying, I'm just checking in or encouraging people to have more Zoom meetings they didn't want to have to offer help that you couldn't give. I mean, how many times did people show up over that that, that, that early pandemic time to their existing clients and say things like, if there's anything I can do to help, don't hesitate to reach out to me. Mm -hmm. Nobody wanted to hear that because nobody wants the offer of help. They want help. Mm. Big difference between those two things. So we helped build protocols of what worked before the work was. We helped 300 individuals, mean that the eight meetings that they have a day with their existing clients all delivered more punch. What happens in an organization when 300 people in eight hours a day over three months get better prepared for every conversation they're already having. They make more of those conversations count. Impact was increased reputation, increased retention, increased results that come through all of those clients, plus loyalty that now exists at this point in time, that because those people were supported through a difficult economic time, what did we increase? Empathy. Mm -hmm. Because they didn't show up to those conversations saying, if there's anything I can do to help, they showed up to those conversations curious. Mm -hmm. What did they do? They learned to be able to see the world through the eyes of others, not through the eyes of the bank. What did they then be able to do is to recommend real-time solutions that the other people weren't thinking of. And instead of saying, how did I help? They could say things that because of the fact that you said, boom, 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 here is something we can do to help. Woo, that sounds better. (laughs) So the examples are plentiful through that. And I think what so many people forget is a single conversation can make a massive change. (laughs) And when you're running an organization that is having conversations at scale, mass mediocrity is probably not good enough. Mm -hmm. And mass mediocrity is often what exists. And in the competitive market, somebody will eat your lunch if you're showing up with mass mediocrity because you're so easy to sell against. Because somebody can, with a few carefully crafted questions, can help you realize that your current solution is inadequate. Right. Let me ask you this question about curiosity. Is there anything we can do to increase our ability to be curious with our clients and with our prospects? A simple trick would be to test yourself to, or challenge yourself to ask two more questions. Mm. Like when you think you found the answer to how you can help or what the solution is, or before you move into advice monster mode, 
Ask two more questions. And don't think that you know the answer. Know the answer. That's great, Phil. Well, let me ask you one more question. What are three action steps people can take to get started on integrating some of these ideas into their day-to-day? First things first is, is identify the high payoff points of friction that exist within your current conversational process. Be brave enough to say, like, here are three, four, five points of influence right now that I'm not a 10 out of 10 on. Understand what they are. Mm-hmm. Once you've understood what those points are, understand this is it's the person who's asking the questions who's in control of the conversation. Mm -hmm. So at those points of friction, what are the questions that need to be asked to provide you the evidence that the friction can now no longer exist? That's great. So that's number two, what questions need to be asked, right? Yeah. And what you're looking to be able to do is to build evidence. I know you work with a lot of legal professionals. If you want to win the case, you ask the questions to be able to collect the evidence so that the jury will see for themselves that this is the outcome that needs to be delivered. Same thing is true in the sales process. Right. So telling somebody that somebody didn't do it Ask the questions to collect the evidence so that they say you didn't do it. That's great. Right? So that's what we look for is the second thing. Points of friction, then questions to be able to avoid it. And then the third thing is is trust yourself to be on that same relentless quest for better. Be brief. Give yourself the time. And some days it's five minutes in the car following a meeting that while you've got your coffee, instead of you just, you know, browsing Facebook for a second, open up notes, write LBs and empties. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it could be after like a major deal piece that went fantastically well. You pull the team together and you put half a day on this and you say, well, what would it be like best about that? You whiteboard the whole thing up and you document it down and you cement it into process. What would we do That's differently right. next time? That's right. well, let's get that documented down as well and see what needs to change now for the long term as a result of the experience that we just went through. But too many people jump straight to the next time without having done, what would I do differently next time? And then they find themselves in the next time, knowing that the worst time to think about the thing you're going to say is in the moment when you're saying it. And they're realizing that whilst they're in the moment. Sure. And they could have spent 30 minutes before the moment to make that 60 minutes so much more valuable. Instead, they spend six years kicking themselves with a shoulda, woulda, coulda. Yeah. Well, let me ask you one final question, Phil. What is your biggest surprise? What surprised you the most from the pandemic and how it relates people in the business of getting business? What's the biggest surprise that came from that, from your perspective? My biggest surprise is how long it took organizations to understand that they could actually enhance the relationships they have with their Mm -hmm. existing clients if they're smart enough to now use the technology that people are being forced to be able to use and how they could layer relationships and now understand that they are dealing with business with people as opposed to just like, like the gift to be able to see inside people's homes. Yeah, right. The gift to be able to understand whether somebody does or doesn't have a dog. The gift for people to have to be vulnerable by not being protected by their work office environment or being at the ball game or being at the bar allowed us to be able to be more curious, which allowed us to be able to reach more empathy. And I think people in many cases missed that opportunity. And the result of which is they got land grabbed. You know, somebody else did do that. That's and true. now all of a sudden, somebody who was a great client is now just a client. Somebody that was a good prospect is now like, you're just a vendor. Well, Phil, I appreciate your insight and your expertise. You've got a unique way of communicating that in a way that's going to help people. And I'm so lucky to interview people like you because I get to sit at the feet of people that have great ideas one-on-one. So thank you for being here today. And before we let you go, I'm going to tell people that we're going to put your links on the show notes. So when we're done, make sure you connect with Phil on LinkedIn, go to his website. And like I mentioned with your book, Uh, That really helped me out. I highlighted so much of that book. 
just because the ideas were so great and they applied directly to my business of selling professional services. So tell us about the books that you have, the resources that you have. What do you offer that can help those people listening today? I'm passionate about the impact of spoken word. And almost all of my work echoes through that. And we've got tons of programs that help support people. If you haven't read exactly what to say, I'm told that it is almost a central reading for anybody yeah. who wants to be more influential yeah. in business or leadership. So, so go grab yourself a copy wherever you can get good copies. If there is a project that I'm curious about more than anything, staying with the theme of today's conversation, I'll show you a quick image of this. I launched this book a month ago. I won the day I produced it. It was a book I wrote for my kids. It is called The Magic of Words. And it's a picture book for two to eight-year-olds to make them That's more awareness of, aware of, of the impact of language. And the reason I say I'm curious is the book's been out six weeks and I'm having school teachers reach out to me to say that we're using the book in class to help our kids understand uh, lessons around bullying, lessons around how they could show up with kindness and gratefulness and mindfulness towards people of different cultures and stuff. And the fact that that is driving a discussion around dining room tables and in classrooms with our future generation was not my intention with the book, but I'm super excited about that's where it's going. And if you've been a kid, know a kid, have kids, and could help me continue that experiment of what happens when we level up the consciousness of our of our younger generation about the power of words. What a different world we could be in. I'd be really happy for you to take that experiment, put the book in front of those kind of people and, and see what difference it could make. That's great, Phil. We'll put that link on the show notes as well. And I'm certainly going to get that one for my kid as well. So thank you so much for being here. I think the listeners will get a lot of good ideas from you today. And I'd recommend that they go back and listen to this show over and over again because it's extremely insightful. And Phil, I'd love to have you back on the show in the future. Thanks so much. For being we were just warming up. <laughs> That's right. Thanks, Phil. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Rainmaking Podcast. For more information about our recruiting services for international law firms, visit our website at attorneysearchgroup.com. To inquire about having Scott speak at your next convention, conference, sales meeting, or executive retreat, visit therainmakingpodcast.com. Rainmaking Podcast.